Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, May the 8th, 2023. I'm currently reading a book which most of you will probably already be familiar with. I, I should have read it many years ago, and I haven't. It's by Ted Chang. It's called Stories of Your Life and Others. It's really a, a remarkable piece of science fiction, a really intriguing take on the world, on uh, our relations with the world and science and consciousness. Above all else, I think Chang really addresses this whole issue of complexity in a fictional sense. Of course, it's science fiction, but he's a writer very much grounded in science himself. I think he went to MIT and he writes with a great deal of authority on what we might think of as complexity theory, although he never formally addresses that. And we're talking complexity theory today um, with another writer, uh, Neil Thies. He has a new book out. It's out tomorrow. Notes on Complexity, a scientific theory of connection, consciousness, and being. He's coming at it very differently from Chang, who, of course, is coming at it as a, a fiction writer. Neil is coming to it uh, as a nonfiction writer, um, as a scientist. He's also a, a doctor. And he's joining us from uh, his place on the Lower East Side in New York City. Um, Neil, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. I'm not sure if you've you've read Chang. I assume you're familiar with some some uh, science fiction writers. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I was a a nerdy teenager, and I ran the sci science fiction section of my bookstore. But um, but no, I haven't read that particular book. I think you'd be intrigued because he's in some ways, I guess, addressing the same issues as you are in your book, except from a coming at it from a very different sort of theoretical position and creative position. Were you ever, I, I mean, you're writing as a doctor here, although you're addressing massive issues in your book, yeah. issues which uh, we as a species have been trying to address ever since we were created. Did you ever imagine coming at this stuff as a fiction writer rather than a writer of science? No, no. Um, you know, and I still have a little bit of an argument ongoing with my agent and my editor and publisher, Julie Grau, um, about whether I'm a writer or not. Um, I, I still sort of think of myself um, as uh, an educator and a teacher who can use language to, to talk about things. Um, but it's getting harder to deny being a writer if I've written a book. So, um so no, fiction, uh, memoir stuff, there are a couple of things ahead of me that I think will advance on themes from this book, but um, more as case studies. Um, my mother's end of life was really interesting in terms of uh, experiencing other planes of existence. And, um, and that la leaps off of places where this book goes in terms of whether materialism is correct or whether the universe is really just um, uh, material uh, mind basically have I cut have you cut out are we still on I just we're see still on. you don't see me okay. because um, <laughs> this is a complex system Neil no we're just showing you because you have a 
You're better looking than I am. Um, you note in the book that nothing, and, and you're not the only person to suggest this. In fact, I was at DLD a few months ago, and another computer scientist was making this argument in the context of AI. Um, you note that nothing in the universe is more complex than life. Why do you think that is? And, and how can you be sure of that? <laughs> um, well, I think that now that we have understandings of what the range of possible orders and disorders are in the universe, how the universe is organized or organizes itself, um, complexity is a kind of order that arises, as is classically said, at the edge of chaos, where order and chaos, as in chaos theory, fractal geometries, etc. Um, this is a particular zone where there is rich information processing and evolution and adaptation. And so uh, as far as we know, there are, un there are no other forms of order. This seems to account for all the various forms of order in existence. And, um, and this is where life happens. This is what life is, is the complexity at the edge of chaos. And, and so, uh, you know, I'm, life is complexity, complexity is life. That's not an unreasonable position to take at this point. So if, know, if nothing is, if you're right, and obviously we're not going to resolve this in this conversation, <laughs> um, if nothing is more complex than life, is consciousness itself the greatest complexity of mm -hmm. life itself? Well, yeah, I mean... That's certainly a position um, many people in our culture, general culture, scientific culture, take. And and this and I, I when I first uh, encountered complexity theory, I thought, oh, of all the living things that we know, the the brain is the most complex, just in terms of sheer number of um, interconnecting um, agents, beings, structures, cells, uh, uh, chemical pathways. Electron, electrical signaling pathways, um, people often say it's the most complex thing in the universe itself. Um, and regardless of whether or not that's true, it is certainly very complex. And so it's not unreasonable to think about uh, consciousness as being an emergent phenomenon that arises from that complexity. And what we mean by emergence is that you can have... Um, uh, the participants in a system, whether it's the elements of the brain or ants in a colony or humans walking down the street, forming traffic flows uh, down the pavement, the interacting elements are all interacting at the local level. But somehow out of these, these local interactions, you get global properties. And these are referred to as emerging from these local interactions or they're called emergence. And so it's not unreasonable to look at the brain and think, oh, well, maybe mind is um, as amazing as it is because it's the emergent property of everything that's happening in the brain. But there are problems with that approach. And, and that's what a, a large part of the book explores is, the, is consciousness an emergent property of the material universe um, or Conversely, uh, is it actually what arises from a universal consciousness, in which case the universal consciousness um, in which that one characterizes as pure awareness, just the awareness of awareness, 
um, with no subject-object split is in fact the simplest thing in the universe. Right, I mean, these are huge issues, Neil. Uh, mm -hmm. These are huge issues which you're addressing in the book. It's a short book. I mean, in a way, some of uh, I've been browsing it this morning, and some of it reads almost poetically. Are you trying to solve this stuff, or are you just trying to throw some of this stuff out there? I mean, you're not pretending that you understand the universe, are you? <laughs> I am saying that there are um, bodies of knowledge that are apt for describing how the universe works that our culture has silenced for the last 100 to 200 years. And that on its own terms, silencing these approaches because they're either not empirical science or not um, provable by formal logic or mathematics, um, our basic materialist culture, silences what um, can be described as metaphysics, things that are known to be true but can't proven to be true through science or math. Um, and, right, uh, and your book ends uh, with a chapter suggesting that we need to return to, to metaphysics. Before we get to that, though, yeah. um, mm -hmm. the book is called Notes on Complexity, I looked up complexity theory, assuming that it was a formal science, and it isn't. Um, is this your term, complexity theory, or is this sort of understood yeah. among scientists? It's sort of understood among scientists. I, I came and was exposed to it first um, about 20 years ago when I was studying stem cell biology. And someone I was working with noticed that when... Um, uh, so my group was one of the groups around the turn of the millennium that was talking about adult stem cell plasticity and that uh, adult cells could do what um, yeah, embryonic stem cells could NYU. And in fact, you were part of a group yeah. that discovered a new organ in the human body, which is quite an achievement. Well, that that's more recent and 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 less controversial than it was four or five years ago. We're, we're making a solid progress on that. But the thing is, when I would describe to people what stem cells and cells in the body were doing, someone made the observation that it sounded like what complexity theorists, uh, how they describe how ants self-organize. And that's where the connection came in for me. The um, complexity theory was a computational and mathematical approach that um, could be useful for describing at first, you know, what I was thinking of as isolated components of existence, stem cells on the one hand, uh, humans forming cities like Jane Jacobs before complexity theory um, evolved with, with a nomenclature and a language. She was speaking in terms of complexity theory about how cities evolve. And um, so people will sometimes say complexity theory, complexity sciences, uh, complexity studies, but computationally and mathematically, it's very specific. Um, as I said, it's, it's this information rich processing zone that lies, uh, computationally at the boundary between order and fractal chaos. Something special is happening in that zone. And this was first recognized, um, uh, in the early to mid seventies. And, um, but eventually became reified as a field with the foundation of the Santa Fe Institute for Complexity Studies. And now there are such institutes or departments within universities around the world. Uh, there's quite a number of books out there. Um, 
on complexity, but most of them are fairly academic and, and technical. And I was hoping, you know, one of the reasons it's called Notes on Complexity, I, I wasn't going to write a comprehensive textbook for the history. Yeah, it would have been a lot longer. So you... you, you it would have been a lot longer. Let, let's yeah. try and simplify this. I think it was Einstein who, and correct me if I'm wrong, said uh, that we always have to, uh, it's the responsibility to, to make sense of the world in the simplest way, but not too simple. So let's pursue this on, on that principle. Simplicity uh -huh. without uh, too much simplicity, Neil. You present sure. there being two versions, shall we say, of consciousness or life or complexity. One that's been uh, marginalized or ignored. Explain these two schools when it comes to consciousness. One that's, I guess, from your point of view, dominated the discourse and one that hasn't. And my understanding is that you're representing a voice from the outside in terms of challenging the current intellectual status quo. Is that fair? Um, not quite. Um, it's only outside because of this dominant social voice saying, having created this artificial boundary and saying that's outside. Um, what um, And it's really three sort of main ways of looking at consciousness. Uh, two have problems <laughs> that I think are irreducible. And then there's the one I'm, I'm coming back to. The two are materialism, um, which says the brain produces mind as an emergent property. Um, the problem with that is that for the tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of studies of measuring activity in the brain, fMRIs, EEGs, et cetera, you'll notice the cognitive neurosciences never say this is that experience of mind. This is a neural correlate of that experience. So no one's ever had anything causative that this activity in the brain causes this experience in the mind. They're simply associations. And so we don't know the causal direction here. That can't be stated. And that's called the hard problem of consciousness. And it's persisted for years, so much so that gradually another discarded approach um, has been emerging in the last decade or so called panpsychism, where consciousness is present and distributed through the universe. Um, and it aggregates into our larger consciousnesses. Um, it could be that if you have cells, you have mind, just a very simple version. There are people who say that there are maybe quantum fields or quantum particles that convey consciousness. There are those who argue that consciousness is in, inherent in space-time itself. And it sort of assembles, again, in a complexity sort of way. It emerges from that. But what the point of view I'm supporting with the book is that consciousness is what underlies everything. And it's not peripheral. Um, quantum physics and relativity support this. As I show in the first half of the book, complexity theory supports this. And the main philosophical lines of, of Western philosophy, we're talking um, Plato, Spinoza, Kant, all fell heavily in this. But they ran up against Newtonian mechanics on the one hand and Descartes on the other, and, in, and then the Industrial Revolution, and the idea that the universe is a predictable machine took over and pushed all those out to the periphery. Well, it turns out that quantum physics 
undermines it. And I talk about Kurt Gödel in terms of his incompleteness. Yeah, Gödel is an important. He, he comes yeah. up in a lot of these kinds of books. What 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 is it so remarkable about Gödel? What did he? And again, make this simple because our yeah. audience and myself we're not complexity theorists like sure. like yourself, Neil. What is it that Gödel understood that's so important? Why does he come up in so many of these books? There's this remarkable man on so many different levels. We've done another yeah, yeah. show. I can't remember the, who we did one with, but we did another show about Gödel. Yeah, I, I, I feel like the culture's waiting to really understand his position and things. Um, and for a lot of people who may be familiar with Alan Turing um, as the father of computer science, right. Turing's work in that direction wouldn't have existed without Gödel. Gödel set the platform for it. Um, so Gödel... Um, so, as I said, the, the, you know, our social bias is that the two ways to measure truth of reality, of our understanding of reality, is empirical science and formal logic. Quantum physics showed that, in fact, you can't get behind consciousness, as Planck said. Um, you can't ever have a complete separation of object and subject, which is the basis of empirical science. Uh, so that doesn't work. But does math, can math and formal logic actually prove everything? Could you have an array of theorems and proofs that could describe the entire universe and rescue that idea? And what Gödel showed is, and, and what you would want is a mathematical structure and set of proofs that would be complete. It would describe everything and it would be consistent within itself so that there was no contradictions which could lead to confusion or, or error. And it was believed that this was achievable. And what Gödel proved um, in an extraordinary uh, leap of intuition, and he spoke about it in terms of intuition, um, he developed a proof that could show there are always going to be things that are true in the universe mathematically, but he acknowledged in other ways too, things that are demonstrably true, but cannot be proven to be true. They can only known to be true through intuition. And so this idea that math and science, by the mid-century, these had already disintegrated. But the, the notion that the universe was a machine and utterly describable and containable with our science and our mathematics had already sort of gripped the popular imagination. Um, and... But philosophically and scientifically and mathematically, they just don't hold. They don't so, hold. Uh, so if if uh, one one of the reviews of your book is, um, suggests that um, that we are simultaneously uh, expressions of the universe itself, and obviously part of it, breaking down that subject-object assumption of mind that you talked about earlier. Um, if that's the case, how do we understand the world if we're both? the reader and the author? Well, it, we, we are used to thinking it's an either-or situation, that someone will demonstrate the nature of existence, and that will be the truth, and all the other theories fall away. And it's really a different sort of situation. Uh, an example I use in the book um, that makes it very vivid to people um, is this image that one can have. Oh, actually, I have the book. I could maybe share the image. Share yeah. Although not everyone, some people will be listening, but we can still describe um, so you have what you're it's, it's well known, uh, uh, an image of two, two faces. Here, we'll try it. It's 
silhouettes of two faces looking at each other and the space between them looks like a vase. Mm. And the question is, is it two faces or a vase? Well, it depends on which way you look at it. And this is exactly the same as in quantum physics, as light waves or particles. Well, it depends on how you look at it. When you make a conscious choice to view it one way versus another, you'll get one or the other. And so the truth is that light is both waves and particles, but we can only experience it one or the other. They're complementary views. Um, it's the same thing with, you know, are we separate individuals at this level of the scale? You're bounded by your skin and I'm bounded by my skin. And yes, we're separate. That's the two faces view, you know, for example. But from a complexity theory standpoint, your body is just made of cells that have self-organized. Those are just made of molecules. Those are just made of atoms. And then you get down into the non-locality, which, you know, won the, an entanglement, which won the Nobel Prize in physics last year. Um, at that point, there are no boundaries. The universe is entirely contained within itself. And all of this is a seamless whole. So the question is, which is it? Well, it's a complementarity. It's both. We are trained to experience the world in this manner of separation. Um, but when we're born, we experience the world as a continuum. So and there's then, the whole, yeah, there's a tradition of this. There's the Gaia theory that you write about in the book, um, uh, pioneered by um, James Lovelock, um, Gaia hypothesis, which is quite controversial. You yourself are... Not as controversial as it used to be, mind you. Well, but is, is this, so to speak, uh, and, and you are a, a Zen Buddhist yourself, is this, so to speak, and it is not necessarily critical, your shtick, is this the argument in Notes and Complexity that um, uh, are you suggesting that this tradition is the one that, that makes the most sense? It's your scientific theory of connection, consciousness, and being? Uh, when you say tradition, which, which are you referring to? Buddhist well, tradition? Well, the, the fact that like you're that. a Zen Buddhist and the, yeah. uh, Lovelock's idea of Gaia, and I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you believe everything he said or wrote, but there is this tradition that you are uh, writing within. Is that fair within, Absolutely. whether it's science or uh, something else, uh, it is a tradition. It is both science and whether I wanted to acknowledge it or not, philosophy. I seem to have become a philosopher at some point. Um, yeah, very definitely. Um, you know, uh, the book is to some extent a continuation from uh, Fritjof Capra's famous book from, I don't know, 60 years ago, The Tao of Physics, where, and, and, and several of the founders of quantum mechanics wrote similar books or papers acknowledging that there are these similarities between what quantum physics shows the world to be and, um, and the way it's been uh, experienced in some Eastern traditions. I'm not specifying that we, we cover quite a few different uh, spiritual traditions um, in the book. And it's not so much that I'm saying they are true, but um, they are, Understanding, understandings of how the universe functions, whether it's from Jewish mysticism, uh, Vedanta, Kashmiri Shaivism, Buddhism, that when one has contemplative practitioners who are adepts 
and who are exploring the mind by looking into the mind, exploring consciousness by using their own consciousness. Um, and that's not empirical science because there's no subject-object split. It's your own mind exploring your own mind. So it's not scientific. And yet there are amazing consistencies that come up. So when I get to that part of the book, it's not so much I'm saying, oh, these are correct, as much as lining up them up and saying, oh, if, if Gödel allows us to use intuitions as part of our understanding of how to explore reality, then you can make these connections and create hypotheses that allow for scientific and mathematical exploration. So at the end of the book, I think I, I didn't realize I was writing a critique of materialism when I started out, um, but it turned into that. But at the end, I'm simply suggesting that there's a program for how to responsibly um, include intuitions. It has to be done with extreme care, um, but that doesn't mean it can't be done. And we all have you, intuition. I mean, I, and, uh, excuse, I, I don't want to get into the debate because I'm not, I don't know this stuff, so I'm not going to start debating with you. I'm curious, um, Neil, we've done many shows on a return to sort of pre-scientific thinking of one kind or another, particularly associated with, um, with uh, pre-colonial nativist cultures of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. Given that Buddhism and other sort of pantheistic doctrines and traditions discovered what you're saying or articulated what you're saying in a non-scientific way, is that what intuition is, that historically we've intuited the nature of things, the nature of consciousness without science, and we don't actually need science? I mean, it seems to me like Gödel is suggesting, even as a scientist, that we don't need science, that intuition is the thing in itself. No, no. I, you know, um, the end of their of Einstein's life was spent in the company of Kurt Gödel in Princeton, and um, they would walk to work in the morning and walk home in the evening together. Um, it's really quite touching, and uh, so here you've got one of the, you know, maybe the preeminent scientist. On okay, the well, leaving aside, I, I apologize for throwing Gödel back in. I mean, it just no, 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 no. That's but, fine. But, but let's go back to that original question. That, that, how, how does it you're a scientist you're a medical doctor you're steeped in all this stuff right why why, why and how it? have we intuited the nature of consciousness before science are you suggesting science isn't very helpful usually no i'm i think science is tremendously helpful but one has to know what its limitations are and what we've learned in the 20th century on its own terms um empirical science has limitations and quantum physics and relativity are where you hit those limits. Um, Gödel showed it for mathematics. There are limitations. So I'm not saying that we don't need those things. Obviously we do. No one ever intuited through meditation how to make antibiotics, you know, <laughs> um, how to build a cell phone, although maybe we'd be better off if that hadn't happened. But um, the, I, none of these things should be excluded. They're all, you know, one could talk about complementarities. If we want to understand as modern humans the true nature of reality, we have a tremendous number of opportunities to do that and means to do that. Why close any of them off? 
So that's what I'm arguing. It's that not that one replaces the other, that, that would be ridiculous. Um, it's that they all have their place and by weaving them together uh, in my scientific, in my academic papers on this topic before I wrote the book, uh, my collaborator, Manas Kifatos, um, who's a quantum physicist and cosmologist, um, we talked about an integrative approach, um, but not integrating not just philosophy and science, which is our Western model, if, if science even acknowledges the value of philosophy, but that we have to integrate metaphysical intuitions too and experiences. And those can come from all sorts of traditions, including shamanic practices. When, when you're talking about indigenous um, insights, um, I, that's what you're talking about. That's the, the term I'll use for it. Why exclude any of it? Why tie one hand behind your back? The, everything is so rich. And as I hope to show in the book, um, when you consider them all together, you get something really rich that is not only um, gives us a means to understand the true nature of reality, but a means to understand what our place in that reality is. So, so we... it's an ambitious project, Neil. Let's yes. end here. What, what is, you, 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 you just talked about the true nature of reality. What is the true nature of reality, at least on May the 8th, 2023? How would you summarize it? I mean, um, you're, you're, you, you've given a lot of thought to this, both as a scientist, as a philosopher. What is the true nature of things? I think the fundal nature of reality is mind and that um, it's pure awareness with no subject object split, with no separation, um, with no internal divisions. And somehow out of that arises the world of separation, the world of dualities, space and time. So what um, is the physical world then? Do we even need our bodies? <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, what's how are you going to define yourself as you without your physical body? At this level of scale, we need our body. It isn't discover, just defining ourselves as you, isn't that a form of false consciousness? We, we did a show, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of David Chalmers uh -huh. uh, on virtual reality, on simulation. He has a controversial book out, which has been very influential, Reality Plus virtual worlds and the problem of philosophy are suggesting that people like Chalmers might be right, that we're living in some vast simulation or is the nature of things by definition a simulation? Thank you for phrasing it that way, because when people ask me, well, are we all in the matrix? I don't know what to say to that. That's not the way I think about things. Um, uh, Sort of like I, I'm, you know, I, I couldn't teach my parents how to program a VCR and don't ask me to do something special on my cell phone. So virtual reality, I'm not so sure yet. But Chalmers, he's the guy who actually coined the phrase, the hard problem of consciousness. And yeah, we are material existence is the appearance of material materiality that arises out of fundamental awareness. It's an appearance. Now, it doesn't mean at this level of scale, it doesn't have profound real impacts on us. Of course it does. But at the same time, in complementarity, equally, none of this is real. It's all just mind. The, the universe is the contents of universal awareness, the way your dreams are the contents of your mind when you're sleeping. 
I, I think that if you want to understand, and, and this is where Jewish mysticism took it, if you want to understand how God created the universe, examine how your mind creates thoughts. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, you should read the um, the Chang book. He has one brilliant short story on uh, on Jewish mysticism, on the Kabbalah, on on life itself. It's a magnificent story. Um, we also did a show. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the neuroscientist Patrick House. He has an intriguing new book, Nineteen Ways of Looking at Consciousness, and dealing with quite similar. Themes, although I think he's less focused on a particular take on consciousness. Finally, um, Neil, a lot of people are going to be listening and kind of intrigued, and then they go back to their daily business, feeding themselves, clothing themselves, working. These are huge issues you're dealing with. If indeed you're right and, and the world itself is just mine, um, what difference should that make to non-philosophers, those of us, the vast majority of us who just go about our daily lives? Should we all become Zen Buddhists like you? What, 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 how should, what would you like your book to do in terms of getting people to rethink their own mm-hmm. notions of themselves and of consciousness in a, in a doable way that doesn't require them to read Gödel or... revise all this science which most of us can't and don't have the time to do anyway you know if i couldn't say something about that why bother writing the book in the first place and that's where i wind up in my afterward um there are ways to come to these intuitions about the nature of existence um that are well described and well trod paths in all sorts of different spiritual traditions and some non-spiritual traditions and they involve service to others, they can involve meditation, they can involve devotional practice. But what where they all lead, in my experience, is, um, you know, I grew up in the shadow of, of one mass extinction event. I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. And I grew up in a community of survivors. And then I came of age as a gay man in New York City in the 1980s, in the middle of the AIDS crisis. And what I can tell you is that there are people who survived the Holocaust or faced their deaths uh, in the 80s, who did so with great resilience and held on to the capacity for joy, and those who were completely broken by the experiences. And I think finding a way to cultivate the experience of the stuff I'm talking about intellectually in the book, um, whatever practice works for you, um, it may be writing poetry, it may be cooking meals for people, um, but Uh, or it could be a hardcore contemplative practice. It cultivates a resilience in the face of change and the likelihood as we're facing now in many ways of mass extinction events. Can we find creative ways to help mitigate those mass extinctions? And even if we can't, can we find ways to be resilient rather than broken by the process of living through them? And I, I think that that's what I want my book to be pointing at. And that's where my book ends ultimately on that theme. 